Welcome to the Elmer EMC podcast. We want to support you on your journey with God. So here's this week's teaching. This morning, I've begun with a slide with the title, Do You Hear What I Hear? And probably immediately comes to mind that uh, old Christmas song. Well, at least for some of you, it's very old because my memory says it came out in the 60s because even Bing Crosby sang it. And uh, the second verse goes like this, uh, said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? You know, ringing through the sky, little boy, do you hear what I hear? A song, a song, high above the trees with a voice as big as the seas. Do you hear what I hear? Are you listening? Or is it so noisy that you can't catch on to what is going on around you and what God might be saying to you? I'm just going to read two of the letters to the seven churches Uh, Just to give us uh, a bit of the flavor of these letters, I'm going to begin with the letter to the church at Smyrna in chapter 2, verses uh, 8 to 11. It's actually the shortest of the seven letters. And uh, then I'm going to read the last one to the church at Laodicea at the end of chapter 3. So these are the words of Jesus. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to the church in these seven representative churches. And Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. A couple of years ago was the first time I've ever had a hearing test. I know occasionally I have difficulty with, uh, uh, I always have a preference for the piano or any instrument that accompanies me on my right side. I've always sensed that the left ear wasn't quite the same, probably with uh, some uh, hearing damage from driving tractor as a child, looking over my shoulder while cultivating corn or something like that. Those old tractors were pretty noisy. I know I have difficulty if there's a lot of background noise and my wife is trying to get my attention, but I had my test and the audiologist said I did very well. So now I have no excuses when Gloria says, didn't you hear me? Well, yes I did, dear. Hearing, it's very important. It's hard to live life without it. I don't know how I would cope if I couldn't hear or I couldn't sing. I think it would drive me mad. Sometimes our hearing gets very confused. I recall a telephone conversation in our early years on Manitoulin Island. We were living in the little parsonage in Spring Bay at the time because uh, I, when my first four years, I pastored both churches on the island simultaneously. And then eventually the two churches became independent from each other. So the early years we were in Spring Bay. And I recall one day it was supper time. And in the middle of supper, the phone rang. And it was one of these old dial-up phones mounted on the wall, nothing like the cell phones that our young people are so accustomed to these days. And one of my sons got jumped from the table and answered the phone. Hello? I beg your pardon? What did you say? Could you say that again, please? Dad, can you talk to this guy? I can't understand him. So I went to the phone. It was Norm. He was the shop manager at Manitoulin Chrysler, and he was calling to let me know that my vehicle was ready. And I said, uh, thank you. I'll pick it up first thing in the morning. And then I said, by the way, when my son answered the phone, what did you say to him? Oh, I, was, I just asked him, would Ray be in? Okay, thanks a lot. See you tomorrow morning. So I got off the phone, turned to my son. I said, when, when you answered the phone, what did you think the other guy, what the, the man was saying to you? Oh, I thought he asked if I was Arabian. <laughs> it, hearing does that. And he was very confused. Here, Jesus speaks to us in these seven letters. And through these seven letters, the most consistent feature, the feature that is repeated word for word every time, is let him or let the one who has ears hear or listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus is speaking. What does Jesus say to us through these seven letters? I'm just going to give a very quick overview, kind of like I'm giving you the big picture. 
Uh, when we get, and when, particularly when Brian gets into the seven letters and looks at them individually, he'll be looking at, at all the particular details because there are details in these letters that can't be overlooked. And yet, there's this a large overarching tenor and theme to them. And so I just want to look at that this morning. So what does Jesus say to us in these letters? The first thing Jesus says to you and to me and to, to all those who read these letters and listen to them is he says, I know. I know. He says, I know your deeds. He mentions that in three of the letters. He says, I, I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know your love and your faith and again, your perseverance. I know your reputation. He says, I know that you are neither hot nor cold. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know where you live. I'm not sure how you respond right now if people ask you, where do you live? And you have to answer, I live in Elmer. Uh, you know, the, the news, your notoriety is such that you might wish to say you live somewhere else. And yet Jesus knows where you live. He knows the situation in which you live. He knows what you are facing, what you have to cope with. He knows what stress and strain you feel because of COVID. He knows where you live. And he knows your weakness. It's a real comfort that Jesus knows. Sometimes we, we kind of feel like uh, the, the secretary bird in the cage in, in uh, of the Lion King. You know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Oh, Jesus knows. Jesus knows very intimately where you are, where you live, what you're facing. He knows all about you. The second thing that Jesus says to all of us in these letters is simply summed up in this word, repent. Repentance, a 180-degree turn, an about-face in our lives so that we conform to the will of God. Uh, one author has described repentance as a way of life and that it is characterized by, by an attitude of unconditional willingness to change. Isn't that what the gospel calls upon us for? It's always molding us. It's always shaping us. And so unconditionally, we let the gospel do that in our lives. Again and again, in five out of these seven letters, Jesus calls upon them to repent. There's a whole list that you can see on the screen there. He knows what they have done. He knows where we fall short. He calls upon us to repent. Or in one case, he kind of duplicates it by saying, wake up and repent. Jesus wants our lives to be changed and transformed so that we are ready for when Jesus returns. Jesus knows us. Jesus calls on us 
to unconditionally open our lives for his transforming power to change us. And then he asks us to listen, to hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is calling upon us to clean our ears, to get the obstructions out of the way, so that we can hear his voice in our lives instead of the voices of all those that are clamoring for us to maybe conform to their wishes, to their ways, the way of the world, rather than the Jesus way. But hearing is hard sometimes. I like to express it this way. It's amazing how much exercise sounds like extra fries. So how can we improve our hearing? Jesus says this to us through these letters. So let us listen to Jesus and let us improve our hearing this morning. The first is, Jesus, these, through these letters, is telling us to get rid of complacency. In the last letter to Laodicea, Jesus says, I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So be earnest and repent. They were lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. There's this complacency about the way that they are engaged in their Christian lives. Or maybe I should say they were not engaged in their Christian lives. Joseph Stoll is uh, the former president of Moody Bible Institute. And he has a wonderful little devotional book entitled Strength for the Journey. And in, in that devotional book, he, he, he puts forward this request that, re, that really expresses so much of what the, where the Western church is at in North America. How we've commercialized our faith and we've made it all about our own convenience. He describes it this way. I would like $3 worth of God, please. I would like $3 worth of God. Please, not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. We like God to make us comfortable. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I'm at ease, I have everything that I want. That often leads us to complacency especially in our walk with Jesus. So Jesus tells us, be earnest. That's the opposite of being in... What's the opposite? What? Anyways, how do you negate complacency? Anyways, Jesus doesn't want us to be complacent. He wants us to be serious 
to be earnest, to be zealous in our pursuit of him. In Jesus' first letter to the church at Ephesus, he tells them to get back to fundamentals. He says, yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember and do the things you did at first. The things at first. The fundamentals. The foundational things. What, how is your quiet time? What's your walk with God like? What's your intake of Scripture? Your prayer time. Are you just saying prayers or are you engaging with Christ in his presence? When God's spirit speaks to you, does he always agree with you? Or do you find that he needles you and he pushes you and he prods you and he leads you to new things that are not your own thoughts? We need to get back to the fundamentals in our lives. He says to remember them and to do them. Those things improve our hearing. To another church, Jesus' advice to improve their hearing is obey what you know. He says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. This is you know, to, to the church at Philadelphia in verse 8, I didn't get it on a slide. He says, see, I have placed before you an open door. It, an open door is really an invitation to step through. It's an invitation to obey, to do what Jesus has set before you. Notice in these last two, getting back to the fundamentals, obeying what you know, they both are connected with Jesus' command for us to remember. There's a, strong, there's a very strong connection between remembering and hearing well. Memory and hearing the voice of Jesus. A number of years ago, uh, the uh, young people at the Mindamoya Church uh, they, every spring they go to uh, a youth rally called Spring Folly. And uh, part of the Spring Folly is they memorize a, a fairly extensive portion of Scripture and, and then they quiz on it. Uh, maybe some of you might, might still remember the days when we had a very active quizzing program among our missionary churches. Probably Elmer had a, had a team of young people competing in that. Uh, my, my wife was on the team from the Bethel Church in New Dundee, so she may have encountered some of you at that point in time. Well, that particular year, they were memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. And so I convinced myself, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I sat down. And in a week's time, I memorized all three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. It was transformative. I'm now convinced that Matthew composed Jesus' sermon and that Jesus gave that sermon in such a way that it was intended to be memorized. That it was intended to be put deep into your heart that through the act of remembrance and repeating it to yourself, 
you could hear the voice of Jesus like you have never heard it before. I'm increasingly convinced that when you look very carefully at most of the New Testament, somewhere along the line there's a reiteration of a theme in the Sermon on the Mount that the voice of Jesus is there for us to hear. Remembering and hearing go together. And then one more thing to improve our hearing, and that is this, never give up. Never give up in your pursuit of Jesus. In, in, in every one of these letters, there's, there's a sentence addressed to those that are described as overcomers. So, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 26, he says, To him who overcomes or conquers and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. This doing his will to the end is connected with that whole thought of never giving up. It describes what it means to be a conqueror or an overcomer in Christ. Grab a hold of that word overcomer or conqueror. It's one of the most important words in the whole book of Revelation. It repeats itself in many different contexts. I believe it already has occurred in the introduction in chapter 1 because Jesus is the ultimate victor. He's the ultimate conqueror. It's, it's repeated through all the rest. And every one of these references to conquest is connected with a promise. I'm not going to elaborate on those because that's Brian's job when he gets to the individual letters. But to hear what those individual letters say, that common theme of being a victor in Jesus Christ is critical to us. We, we, we see it this whole idea of being an overcomer or a conqueror repeated, for example, in chapter 12 and verse 11. There it says they overcame or they conquered or were victorious over Satan the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They were not going to give up. They were tenacious in their pursuit of Jesus. When we pursue Jesus, we hear much more clearly. If we're complacent, for example, as we've seen before, then our hearing becomes dull. They didn't even shrink to the point of death. In Romans 8, Paul says that neither life nor death, angels nor demons, the present or the future that is present or things to come, things in the earth and things under the earth or any other thing, can they separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus? No, they can't. Because in Romans 8.37, we are told this, that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We've spent a lot of time already this morning looking at the theme of listening to Jesus, of hearing him. But there's one more thing we need to hear when we hear the voice of Jesus. 
As we go through these seven letters, we note that there is a growing sense of urgency in the voice of Jesus. We, we see this growing urgency as we progress through them. And so, so here's the listing of how Jesus communicates this urgency. In his first letter, he says to the church at Ephesus, I will come. But in the third letter, he now says, I will come soon and fight against those who are opposed to Jesus and have gotten the gospel. When we get to the fourth letter, things are getting much more serious. He's dealing with a person who's named Jezebel and her followers that are undermining the gospel and dragging the church down. And he says, that, so I will cast her, Jezebel, on a bed of suffering, and I will strike, strike dead those who follow her. The whole idea of I come is really implied with that. I will come and I will do this. In the letter to the church at, I believe, well, my memory fails me, so I won't even try, but it's the, the first letter in chapter 3. He says, I will come like a thief. Sudden, unexpected. There's an urgency coming. Because when we get to the last letter, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. There's this progression. I am coming. I'm coming soon. <laughs> I'm coming like a thief. Here I am at the door. Jesus says in the last letter, in chapter 3, verse 20, here I am. It's no longer I am coming. It's here I am. Actually, it's rendered as behold. It's a word that really kind of just grabs you by the shoulders and shakes you and says, now look at this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I want you to note something. We almost universally quote this verse as a salvation verse, don't we? But this verse is written to a church. This verse is written with the presupposition that these are Christians who are receiving this letter. This sense of urgency that Jesus is pressing on us here already in the third chapter of Revelation, it's addressed to you and to me. It's not something that's for them. If you want to think in us and them terms, which is usually a pretty foolish way of thinking anyways. But it's written to Christians. It's meant as a wake-up call for you and for me. I stand at the door. James, in his letter, at the end of verse 9, says this, the judge is standing at the door. That's a reference to Jesus. And it's written to brothers and sisters in Christ again, telling us that, you know, we're, in, in the way we conduct our lives, we're shutting out our ability to hear him in our squabbling and grumbling with one another, and we're setting ourselves up for judgment, and the judge is standing at the door. 
In chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus once again says this to the churches when he comes in judgment on Jezebel and her followers. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and that I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Ooh, those are powerful words, aren't they? Those are words of judgment. You realize the gospel's all about judgment? Jesus took our judgment on himself when he went to the cross, didn't he? When we repent, we're responding to God's word, and we're judging ourselves according to God's word, and we make a change. When we confess our sins, we are pronouncing judgment on ourselves. We are agreeing with God. If anyone confesses his sins, you know, uh, you know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But to confess means we agree with God that our judgment now is the same as his. And when our Lord forgives us, you realize that's an act of judgment too. Forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, that's okay. No, it wasn't okay. It never was okay. We've got a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness basically means, yes, you're right. You've judged yourself correctly. And I will take that judgment away from you because I've taken it on myself. You see, the gospel's all about judgment, about right judgment, about godly judgment. And Christ is the judge. And Peter tells us in his first letter, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. That's what these letters are in part about. Judgment begins at God's household, and then we see the judgments that come later. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As I wind up, I want to ask you a question. Why all this urgency about hearing Jesus' voice? Why this pressing demand, let, the, let those who have ears Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to you and to me. I think I know why. And Revelation tells us why. You see, these letters are written to the bride of Christ, right? The bride is central to the message of the book. The letters are addressed to the bride. The whole book is really one big prophetic letter written to the bride. It's written as a circular letter to go that all, everything is meant for all seven churches, and yet it contains these seven letters that all the others can listen in on, and that these seven letters are cross-referenced through with the rest of the book. So all the pictures of Christ that are in the letters come from the opening vision. Almost all the promises that go to the overcomers are connected with what we see later, especially in the New Jerusalem at the end of the book. The whole book ties together, and it's written to you and to me. 
And in the midst of it, we read this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory, chapter 19, verse 7. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. That's why the urgency. He wants his bride to be ready for his return. These messages are to get us ready. Are you getting ready for that day? In just the moment, we're going to share around the Lord's table. We're going to share the bread and the cup. We call it communion. Jesus is the host of that table. We don't see him, but he's in the midst of us right now. He is present among his people. He inhabits the praises of his people. By his spirit, he's in the midst of his people. We've already seen the picture here in Revelation of Christ standing in the middle of the seven candlesticks, which he says are the seven churches. So he is in the midst of his people. He is here and he is hosting this table this morning. And the letters call us to remember. Remember what you did at first. Remember what I have said and put it into practice. Obey it. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a strong connection between remembering and listening. May communion this morning be an act of listening for you as you remember Jesus and what he's done. As you eat and as you drink, ask Jesus this morning, what are you saying to me today, Lord? Like Samuel of old, make it your prayer. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. And as you eat and drink, as you taste of the grace of Jesus once again, as you eat and drink the bread by faith in the one who went to a cross for you, make yourself ready for that day. May your act of eating and drinking, may that be for you an act of listening to Jesus once again, maybe with unplugged ears for the first time, maybe in a long time. Lord, open my ears, Lord, and help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, your letters are so forceful and yet you speak so gently. There are days when we fear you and we think of you as a lion from the tribe of Judah and then we turn to you and you are the lamb who once was slain. Lord, Oftentimes we are so distracted by the things that are keep us busy in our lives, by the worries and the cares that press in upon us, sometimes by our anxieties with all the things that are happening around us that make us fearful. Gracious Lord, help us to break out of our complacency Help us to get back to the fundamentals. Guide us 
in putting your word into action because, Lord, you are the conquering one. You've conquered us with your love when we've looked at the cross. We pray that we would, along with you, be conquerors through the blood of Jesus and the word of your testimony. As we eat and as we drink, Lord, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In your wonderful, powerful name we pray. Thanks for listening. We invite you to follow Jesus with us and join us on mission with him. We'd love for you to connect with us through our website, worship at aemc.com, or on Facebook. Just search for Aylmer EMC.